Well, some of you know me and uh, others don't. I'm Jeannie Whitehurst, a retired Methodist pastor, and uh, I've been associated with this church now for two years, and it took me about that long to uh, say, okay, God, what do you want me to do with me still? I have my suitcase packed after two years of just kind of vegging, ready to do whatever God says, because I got a little bored. Lord, Laura called and said, Jeannie, would you uh, help me out? Would you do 10 hours a week and do adult ministries and a variety of other little things, just 10 hours? Yeah, I can do that, as long as you know I'm not going to be available every Sunday. Because I am retired now. I said, okay, we'll figure that out. Well, now I'm working 10 hours a week. And you can find me in the office on Mondays and Thursday mornings. And by my cell phone if you need to. And I do help her out with hospital visits and every once in a while a preaching engagement. So, uh, and a wedding. So it's kind of fun to be back in the stirrups again or the boots or whatever. I guess God never does finish with us, right? Thank God. Well, because I'm always ready, I learned a long time ago that God doesn't give up. I ran from God's call to ministry for 40 years, literally 40 years. I gave every excuse possible. I'm short, I'm a woman, I'm stupid, I'm short. I'm wife, I have children, I'm stupid, I'm short. <laughs> I'm a woman. Uh, well, God said, yeah, you're all of those things, so what's the big deal? But it took a pastor friend who had to say, Jeannie, get over yourself. Let God <laughs> tell you what to do. Let go of the control let God. Well, I don't know about letting go of control because I really do like control. I'm the planner in the family and I love to plan vacations. In fact, I have so much fun planning vacations. I like that better than being on the vacation. <laughs> I read, I have my tour guide books, I talk to everybody in advance, I make my reservations. It takes me months to plan this trip. I know so much about our destination, but my family doesn't care. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> what do I do with all that stuff? They just want to be there. They could care less that there was a lot of people that died at that spot. It's a gorgeous day, honey. Just enjoy the day. Okay. Well, I've discovered that it's not only the planning that takes time in advance for the trip, it also requires taking care of the cats, the dog, the plants, and the house. And who's going to do the yard? So by the time you get all of that done, then you pack. And then maybe you're ready. I can always think of something else that needs to be done, though. Well, here we are in the story of Exodus, and we have thousands of people that are going to have to move from Egypt to the promised land. Oh, they've been told they're going to do this. They've had 430 years to prepare. They've been in slavery that long. 
But they have figured out that they have lots of excuses for not going. They don't have the right baggage. They don't have enough food. They're slaves. How are they going to control their lives if somebody else tells them when to eat and when to work? They can't make plans. They surely don't have enough resources for a long journey. No food. They get just enough for that day. And the rigors of slavery require them to work from sunup to sundown, so they're pretty tired. Well, I can't imagine what it would take to move thousands of people. Talk about a control freak, fun time. Well, they weren't really ready to go yet. They couldn't figure out how to get out of slavery. Well, who were these Israelites? This people we keep talking about were the Jews. Well, at this point, they were just marginalized poor people from a variety of nations who had no ownership of anything, had no power and no prestige, and they were just kind of lumped together under slavery. No identity other than just being a slave. They didn't know they were the chosen people. Oh, they had heard about the covenant that had been made 430 years ago with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had knew that there was a promise about multiplying into a great nation and moving eventually to a promised land, Canaan. But it had been 400 plus years. When was that going to happen? Oh, yeah, they had grown in numbers. They had gone from a small group of 12 tribes to thousands. Well, part of the promise had been fulfilled, but it only brought suffering and slavery, not a blessing. And in fact, they were in such large, num large numbers that they, they uh, outnumbered the Egyptians, the ruling power. And you know what happens when pharaohs and societies get threatened by a particular group of people. We saw it in South Africa. We see it all over the world throughout our history. The ruling powers get frightened, thinking there's going to be an overthrow of their prestige, their regime, take away their wealth and all their property, well, Pharaoh was so frightened that he had all the slaves working very hard, building all those pyramids and wonderful things that you can see when you go to Egypt. The slaves were so tired and hurting so much that their cries finally were heard by God. And we heard from Pastor R last week that God heard the cries and selected Moses, who was in hiding, called him to go back to Egypt, where he was wanted for murder, and go to the Pharaoh, risking jail and death, and tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. Moses, like you and I, would say, Moses came up with all sorts of excuses. I can't speak. Well, I'm pretty stupid. 
Well, God said, well, just take your brother Aaron. He's a good speaker. Moses then said, oh, I don't know what to say and do. They don't know me. I have no power or recognition. Why would the Israelites believe me? Much less the Pharaoh. God said, Moses, get over yourself. Just do what I tell you to do. I'll provide you with all the words, and I'll do all the actions. Just do what I tell you to do, when I tell you to do it. Well, Moses drug his feet back to Egypt. And we find in Exodus 5, thank you very much, Laura, nine chapters in Exodus you left me with, and I got to condense it into 15 minutes? Mm-mm, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Chapter 5, we start with Aaron and Moses appearing before Pharaoh. And this momentous occasion, I can't even imagine two lowly men, one thinking he's going to get arrested for murder, appearing before the king and saying to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Israelites says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the desert. Well, it sounded to me a little bit like Yahweh is treating Pharaoh as an underling without any authority or power. That whatever God says, Pharaoh's going to have to obey. Well, I would imagine that Pharaoh was just kind of appalled that two men could walk into his chambers and tell him what to do. And in fact, he responds to Moses and Aaron with, I do not know this Yahweh. Hmm. That dismissal of God is a slap in the face to the power of the one that we call Lord. Pharaoh didn't think God had any authority. In fact, they weren't even equal. Pharaoh was more powerful in his mind than the Lord. So, why should he pay any attention to what Moses and Aaron were saying the Lord told him to do? And he didn't release the slaves. And in fact, he was so angry that these Israelites were crying for help that he thought they were lazy and wanted to punish them, and so he uh, made the jobs even harder. Instead of supplying the straw that had been harvested by other slaves, the slaves who were building the and making the bricks now had to go out and harvest the uh, straw, then bring it back, and still make the same number of bricks meeting their quota for the day. So where they had been working from sunup to sundown, they had to get out and go way before daylight and then work way after sundown just to get the bricks made. And again, you can hear that they were crying. In fact, they, the supervisors of the Israelites went to Moses and said, you and Aaron really caused us some trouble. 
you went and complained, and all it did was make us have to work harder. God didn't do anything to help us. Stop doing it. Leave us alone. We'll be okay. We know how to live as slaves. Just go away. Well, Moses went back to, Israel, to uh, the Lord and said, Well, you didn't do anything for the Israelites. Your people, you say you were going to help them and take them out of slavery, and you've just made their work harder. You're punishing your people instead of helping them. Aren't you going to do something? You don't have any power against the Pharaoh. He thinks he is Lord of everything. Then we turn to chapter 6 in Exodus, and we hear from the Lord. The Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. In fact, he'll be so eager to let them go that he'll drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But I didn't reveal myself to them by name, the Lord. I also set up my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as immigrants. I've also heard a cry of the grief of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians have turned into slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from Egyptian forced labor. I'll rescue you from your slavery to them. I'll set you free with great power and with momentous events of justice. I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God. You will know that I am the Lord. I am your God who has freed you from Egyptian forced labor. I'll bring you into the land I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as your possession. I am the Lord. Moses conveyed that to the Israelites, and they were so tired, they didn't listen. Well... Moses now believes God's going to work, but can't figure out how and what. So we then turn to chapter 7, and we read from verses 1 through 5a to discover how God's going to work. The Lord said to Moses again, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You will say everything that I command you, and your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of the land. But I'll make Pharaoh stubborn, and I'll perform many of my signs and amazing acts in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh refuses to listen to you, then I'll act against Egypt, and I'll bring my people, all of my people, Israelites out of the land of Egypt in military formation by momentous acts and events of justice. 
the Egyptians will come to know that I am the Lord when I act against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Okay, that sounds a little ominous. How's God going to do these wondrous acts? These amazing things that are designed to get the attention of all that see them and witness them so that everyone will know that he is the Lord. So we hear that there were some plagues. Well, you see some pictures of some of them. Well, the first two are wondrous acts that were done by Aaron and Moses in front of Pharaoh in his chamber and at the edge of the Nile. The first one is that Aaron throws down the staff and the staff becomes a cobra. Well, an aside, the snake is a symbol of protection for the ruling king. So when the snake is created by God, and the magicians of the Pharaoh can duplicate that same magical trick, throwing their staffs down, and they have turned into snakes. They think that there's equal power between God and the gods of Egypt or the world. But what happens? The cobra eats the Pharaoh's uh, official magicians, snakes, gobbling up, signifying that nothing will protect the Pharaoh and the land. God is more powerful. But Pharaoh still has his heart hardened, still stubborn. So Moses and Aaron go out to the edge of the Nile and change all of the water in the wells and in all the rivers into blood. Now, you remember this is the desert. Water is essential for life. There's not much of it to begin with, and if it all turns to blood, there's nothing to drink. Blood is significant. We're going to hear about it later. Then we hear that Pharaoh is still stubborn and he's not going to release the slaves. And every time Moses and Aaron go before the Pharaoh, they cry out, let the people go. For what reason? So that they may worship God. But Pharaoh says, this God doesn't have any power over me. He's the king. He's the one with the power. So God enacts all sorts of plagues using the natural forces of the earth in which he had just created at the foundation and formation of the world. He sends frogs, lice, yep, insects. There's so much devastation in the land that the animals begin to get sick and they die. And then there's no food left. There's no wheat, there's no corn, there's no animal to eat. But Pharaoh still has a stubborn streak. Then locusts. We've heard about the story of the locusts. They took anything that was remaining and it's gone. 
There's nothing left but dirt. We know what about dirt after our droughts. It's rock and dirt. Israel's very much like that, and so is Egypt. That still wasn't good enough for Pharaoh. Darkness descended over the land. For three days, no one could leave their house because they couldn't see. It was so densely dark. It was frightening it was so dark. Now, you might wonder what's been happening to God's people during all this time. These Israelites must be suffering as well. If the Egyptians are and they're supplying the food and requiring them to continue to work. Well, from what commentators have said, the Israelites were so used to not having anything and knowing how to survive on hardly anything that they fared fairly well. It was the Egyptians who were soft, who had their air-conditioned rooms, their cars, you know, making an analogy here, their wealth. They were soft. They had no calluses on their hands. They didn't know how to deal. They began to cry out to Pharaoh and the officials, Hey, aren't you paying attention to us? We're the ones that are suffering. You're in the temple and in the, your holy of, uh, castle over here, your palace, and you're fine. You still have your air conditioning. We don't have it. Pharaoh was much more concerned with himself and with his position and his power and wealth than he was about his people. Have you ever known anyone that seemed to be more concerned about success and money and getting their way than they were about the people around them? Maybe you can even think about the different places in our history and the countries in our history where... hmm, Regimes were so violent, like Libya. The, they were trying to protect themselves and their power that the people were killed. Genocide is happening in the name of greed and power and sovereignty. Hmm. Well, we have learned that the people of the Exodus are no different than us. We too suffer and cry out to God and hope that God will hear us and provide salvation. And what we need to remember is God has done that in the past and will do it in the present. For God made everything possible happen to get those thousands of people out of Egypt and into Canaan, the promised land. He used every resource, both human and divine, to make sure that the people would get to where they needed to be. Now, it's important for us to remember that Moses was a significant figure in accomplishing the work of God. God uses humans. God uses a local church, other people, to get God's work done. God uses us, tells us what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. 
just like he did with Moses. Only if we would listen, we would be able to do what God wants for us to do. Well, there was one more plague yet to happen. God told uh, Moses and Aaron it was going to happen, but he said, Now, wait a minute. I'm not ready for that one to come yet. I need you to do something. I need you to get our Israelites ready to travel. When I tell them it's time, they need to be ready. I'm going to make sure that they have every resource that they need. So you tell the Israelites to go to their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, and ask them for all their jewelry, silver and gold, and for animals that they can take with them on the journey, and they'll do it. Moses went and told them. The Israelites reluctantly went to their neighbors and asked. And, well, the Egyptians were so in awe of the power of Moses and Aaron that they willingly gave of their wealth to the Israelites. Just take it and go. Oh, we don't want any more hardship. Just go. Commentators tell us that literally the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. It was a transformation of society in which the rich became poor and the poor became rich. Everything that was needed for a long journey was now in the possession of the Israelites. They had clothing from the Egyptians, royalty robes, fine duds, you know, things from Ralph Lauren. They had jewelry, gold and silver. Oh, that could be melted and used as currency. They even had animals that they could create a herd from and eat off as they traveled. But that wasn't enough for God. God said, okay, Moses, now they have that, and I need them to be prepared to protect themselves during this last plague. And then what is this plague? We turn to Exodus 12 to find out. And remember, this is God taking a break from the plagues, from the last one that we just saw, uh, the locusts and the darkness. And he is promising now the destruction that will even bring Pharaoh to tears. This is what the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month will be the first month. Okay, God's got such a plan that he's even going to change the calendar of the year. It had been September when they started their year. Now it's March. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community, on the 10th day of this month, they must take a lamb for each household. A lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with its neighbors. You should divide the land in proportion to the number of people who will eat it. Your lamb should be a flawless year-old male. You take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep a close watch over it until the 14th day of the month. Boy, these are specific. 
This is about as specific as my planning to go on my vacations. And God's doing it. Oh, good boy. I don't have to worry about that. At twilight on that particular day, the whole assembled Israelite community shall slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the doorpost and on the beams of the door of the houses in which they reside. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning and burn any of it left over. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat it, eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt. Every firstborn, both human and animal. I'll impose the judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Whenever I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a day of remembering for you. You will observe it as a festival to the Lord. You will observe it in every generation as a regulation for all time. You will eat unleavened bread, and you will remember that I am the Lord. That's the celebration, the festival of the unleavened bread, Passover, that the Jews continue to uh, celebrate every year. It's set by the vernal equinox so that it's within the first full moon of that, right after that first full moon in the vernal equinox. Our Easter is celebrated in that time frame. And we may know many of our Jewish friends who are Orthodox and perform the rituals, having the Seder meal in their homes on Thursday night, usually, of Passover. It was that Thursday night where Jesus and his disciples were having that traditional Seder meal that we know as the Lord's Last Supper. It was that Jewish custom. Yes, Jesus was a Jew. Our history is Jewish. We honor our Jewish history as our history as Christians. Yes, the Exodus defined and identified the chosen people, this conglomeration of marginalized folks into one community of faith called the Israelites, the chosen of God. And we have been lumped in as the followers and heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into that company of faithful believers. Jesus changed that Seder meal that Thursday night 
from that rote ritual that every child and adult knew in a faithful Jewish home. And when he took the bread, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Can you imagine the startled shock of those disciples? That wasn't the liturgy. Hey, you forgot the script. Here it is. Read it. Then Jesus took the cup, the Elijah cup, and gave thanks to his father. And he said, drink from this. This is my blood shed for you. For the freedom of your sins. From your sins. Blood. Blood. The significance of blood is that it's a symbol of God's deliverance. The blood. Jesus was known by the New Testament writers as the Lamb of God, their firstborn Son of God, the faithful Son of God. You hear the common language? The Exodus gives us Christians words to articulate our faith story. Yes, the Jews have it as the identity of who they are as a people of faith. We Christians have it as a story of ours that continues to unfold as we live today. Remember, God is the actor. God is the one giving instructions. God is the one that's doing all the detail planning. God is the one that's supplying everything that's needed. Has from the time of creation through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ and through our lives. God wants to be known as your Lord. God wants you to say, yes, I believe in you as my Lord and Savior. When you say your baptism and when you reaffirm your baptism, when you profess your faith, you are saying, yes, Lord, I believe you are my Lord and Savior. I know that Jesus died for me, that he shed blood so that I might have freedom. Yes, the Exodus story is our story. We live in a society that's still filled with violence, greed, heartache, pain, suffering. Yes, we get tired of carrying the load of living in a world that is filled with misconceptions of what is success and who is in control. And in our depressed state, we cry out to God, help! And we want deliverance and transformation. Well, God is asking us, are we really ready to go on this journey that God has planned for us? 
to have the promises that have been given to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are we really ready? When we ask for God's help, we are asking to be transformed, to live a life that's totally different than what we have been living. I'll tell you from experience, be careful what you ask for. God will make sure that you will have everything you need, the words that you need to say. You will be given the directions of how to act as a disciple, when to act. You will even be finding yourself in situations where you're going to be witnessing of a transformative love that you have known to somebody who is crying in pain. For you are God's messenger. You are the Moses and the Aaron for those people. And when you are in a hospital room or at a deathbed or when you are struggling with a family who is dealing with addictions or abuse, when you can't find a way out to find a job or finances is just overwhelming you, I hope you will remember the story of the Exodus and know that God will give you everything you need just when you need it and not a minute sooner. Are you ready for the journey? You don't even have to pack a bag to go with God. He takes care of everything. Just go. Amen.